Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Thank you for joining me. This is going to be a longer form video and therefore you might need to listen to it in sections. Uh, those of you that listen to podcasts, you're used to this. You, you pause and start again the next time you're running around the block or you are driving to work. But this will be a longer one and here's how it started. At this moment, in, in actual time, it is the next to last week in July. And I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. We call that, so you say you want a revolution. I believe the Sermon on the Mount could really be called a kingdom manifesto because Jesus is laying out what his kingdom will look like and what his subjects will do and, and the kind of people that they are. There's a give and take in these things. You see, sermons back then weren't one direction. People would ask questions and so, and, and even offer arguments or objections. So as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, whether you're looking at Matthew 6, uh, 5, 6, and 7, or whether you're looking at a very close parallel, uh, Sermon on a Flat Place in Luke chapter 6, uh, with a little bit of Luke 11 thrown in, you'll see that there's, there are distinct breaks in uh, subject matter. And then coming back to subject matter, these are where answers are being given to objections or questions from the crowd. Very common, that's the way you did things. Not in a temple, and sometimes not in a synagogue, but this was an outdoor gathering where people were coming to evaluate Jesus, to see who he was, and decide you know, to form an opinion about him for themselves. And this would be very crucial for their lives. Of course, we know it would be very crucial for your eternal life. They did not know that at this stage. They, some of them were gathering that, but most of them were, <clears throat> let's see, let's see, let's, let's see what he has to say. In the sermon, I spent just a few minutes in a passage that speaks about marriage and divorce. And immediately I got a whole bunch of emails and they weren't the kind of emails I usually get when I hit a particularly contentious topic. I get a lot of hate mails and a, and a lot of questioning ones, and those are not the same. Uh, there are people who very much disagree with me, but do so very kindly. I, they have a wonderful Christian spirit about them. And thank you for them, because when two people always agree about everything, one of them is unnecessary. So uh, we only learn when we listen to things that we hadn't thought of before. So that's good, I like those. But you also get the very, very scathing uh, assaults. But I didn't get those. I assume I will for this, by the way, but I didn't get them. What I got, a great number of, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've been living in fear. I've been living with this tension. I've been living with a horror of the judgment of God. I feel relieved and I can now feel free to love my mate and love my God. And so, Others said, well, what about all these things that people have said through the years 
to tar and feather those who have been divorced and particularly those who have been divorced or remarried and oh god help you although many ministers say he will not if you've been ma <clears throat> married divorced remarried divorced and so on um, what, what does the bible really say what does god really think about us now later on uh, I, rather before i even get there I put up on Facebook, should I address this in a long form video? Should I address it in a sermon? Or should I address it in a series of Monday morning messages, which is what the Who Told You About or Who Told You That series has been going for perhaps two years. I got more response from that one post than I have from any post that I can remember in the last couple of years. And they were almost evenly divided between the Monday morning messages and a long form podcast. So we're gonna do both. We're going to do the Solomon thing here and split the baby. Uh, long form here. And then in late September, early October, because most of these have already been recorded up to then, we're going to do two or three on this. And they're going to be very different in style and tone. Those will be for people that just want facts. They don't really need to go into depth at all. And if they want to go into depth, we will direct them back to here. But there's another difference in this video or podcast I need to pretty much warn you about. And that is that this is going to deal far more personally with the tribe in which I was raised and the teaching that arose in that tribe in the late 20s, but mainly in the 30s, 40s, and 50s of the, ninth, of the last century. And, uh, and I'll have to explain how that works. So those of you that are members of Churches of Christ, uh, those of you who were raised in it or perhaps aren't members now, those of you that have never heard of it, you just need to be aware it's going to be mentioned quite a bit here. And there's no animus toward the Churches of Christ at all. Churches of Christ, if you don't know this, let me just set this up. Churches of Christ do not have a central authority. There's not a church headquarters. There, there's not an ecclesiastical structure. Each of them claim to be autonomous congregations. Uh, what that means is they answer only to themselves and they are formed around uh, solo scriptura, only scripture that is the word of God. And there are certain things that they do have in common. But the fact is this, they're not autonomous because peer pressure has forced conformity unto most of them. By the way, that conformity is killing them. They are disappearing at a very rapid rate, and it breaks my heart, frankly. Others have become more progressive. They've even dropped the name Church of Christ, or it's in smaller letters. Uh, I saw that starting back in the late 70s and 1980s, but now it's really picking up. And if you see that, that generally means, yes, we go by what the Churches of Christ did in the 18 and 1900s, but we don't do it as hard and we've loosened up some of the rules, perhaps about music or women's participation in worship, a few things like this. The Churches of Christ are a fascinating study. Uh, I've certainly studied them. I've read literally, literally thousands of books and papers because reading's what I do. You know, I read two to three books a week. I have since I was 12. I read between five and six journals every week, but I also do the neuroscience reading and the testing there. Um, reading the test. I don't, I'm not a guinea pig. Reading their test and reading the study. So 
Reading's what I do. It's really the only talent I've got. You know, I can play guitar a little. Um, I, I just, I can't fix things. You know, I'm, I'm not good at sports. This is what I do. So I hope it doesn't come off as bragging. Uh, it's a very narrow gift set. And without a whole bunch of people gathered around me, I can't make it through a day, frankly. So that said, let me set up a scenario. And this scenario is not a false one. This scenario, not only did it occur, similar scenarios, similar, similar stories have happened in my presence or to friends of mine who came to me for various reasons, oh, scores and scores of times. Here we go. There was a church that uh, was struggling with growing. Uh, most of them were older in the congregation. And they were very, very excited when this young family moved into town. The young family was beautiful and sweet and interested. They were, they were ready to join in with this church and really help it go. They'd been attending for a couple of months and, and you could tell they really enjoyed being there. And they, they wanted to, uh, to become a part of that, that particular congregation. So in Churches of Christ, there are um, a couple of ways that people indicate that they want to be part of that church. One is to walk forward at the end of the sermon when they sing something they call an invitation song. People come forward to say they need repentance or prayers. People come forward to say they want to be baptized, but also people come forward to say, we'd like to place membership here. Well, another way is to fill out a card in the pew that says, hey, we'd like to talk to you about membership. I believe they filled out the card one here. And so the elders, which are um, local men, almost absolutely 100% of the time in Churches of Christ, men who are um, called to that office by the congregation, they say, these are the people we want to lead us. They went and talked to the family, very excited. Things were looking good. The woman and the man were able to teach Bible classes. They had great grasp of scripture and such. And as the elders talked to them about their personal history, they found out that both of them had been divorced early in their life and after short marriages, and then married to each other for many years and had these precious babies. And immediately the elders said, you can't be a member of our church because you're living in adultery. This is an adulterous marriage. God does not consider what you have now a marriage. It is sin. Well, they were shocked and hurt, outraged and brokenhearted in equal measure. And they asked, well, then what are you saying we have to do? Because we made mistakes when we were young. We repented and we came to, you know, to Christ understanding that we needed to hold our covenant. We've held our covenant. They said, well, you have to leave who you're married to now and either go back to the one you were married to, because that's the only marriage God, you're still married in God's eyes, is the phrase. I've heard that thousands of times. Or you have to break apart from each other and be celibate the rest of your life. Now, for those of, there are, there are several groups listening to this. There are some who are not believing such a system exists because it sounds so heartless and cruel. It does exist, and it's not just in Churches of Christ. 
The Catholic Church has several, Roman Catholic Church has several versions of this as well. And there are other Protestant groups and independent groups that don't like calling themselves Protestant groups that do the same thing. There are other groups here that are hurting like crazy because they were the ones that were told, no, you can't come to us unless you break up your marriage. Um, then there are others who are thinking, well, good for that church. They, they held to the truth, even though it hurt them because they weren't gonna be able to have this lovely family help them. And I've, I know all these groups. I know them well. In fact, the person who told me the story I'm thinking of right now told it to me with pride to, to say, we wanna grow, but we're not going to hand over the scriptures. We're not gonna step away from God's word, even at great cost. And they wanted me to compliment them for turning away the young family. Yeah, this is gonna be more direct. This is gonna be more, I don't know, painful. If you would like to share your stories, feel free to do so. The email to uh, uh, patrick at rsafeharbor.com. I think I'll give you my personal one there, patrick at rsafeharbor.com, so that it doesn't go to the other two uh, team members and they don't have to, uh, to read and deal with it. I want to keep it, keep it between us, all right? And if you give any of your story in the comments here, please make sure no names of churches or individuals. If you have to use a name, make it plain that you are using a pseudonym, all right? And, and one that isn't close <laughs> to, to the real one. No doxing. Don't tell me the town, the street, the city. Don't do anything that would put, even if your mate was abusive and horrible, we do not make them a target. And the internet will make somebody a target. I don't get death threats as a rule. I've had two or three in my life. They all came from the internet. Well, all but one came from the internet. So we just, we don't do that, all right? So you can tell your story, but not in a way that harms another. I know it's hard, especially when you've been harmed. That said, when I was growing up, I was told that the church had always taught that any divorce except for the reason of sexual sin by one of the partners was not an end to the marriage. It was not legitimate. Therefore, you, the people who had divorced would never were never allowed to remarry. And it didn't really matter whether it was for neglect or whether it was for you know, financial, you know, fraud and criminality or even for abuse. As long as he didn't sleep with somebody else or she didn't sleep with somebody else, you could not divorce them. And in fact, I have heard sermon after sermon where the, the minister would say he might be this and he might be that. I've heard counselors of these churches say, because remember, I used to be a shrink and I've sat in and they would say to a woman who is talking about being a verbally abused, constantly torn down, shoved saying, this is not adultery. He has not committed sexual sin. Therefore, you can't end this marriage. And then they would talk to them about, Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Maybe this is your cross. I'm, I'm not making this up. 
And right now, listening to this are a whole lot of people who that happened to. It happened to them directly. And then we, we went even further. Let's say that Bob and Mary, right? They're married. Bob commits adultery. Whatever that is right now, we're not going to talk about what well, he commits adultery, sexual sin. Mary looks at that and goes, no, you have broken the covenant, which scripture does say. Therefore, the marriage can be dissolved because it really was broken by the adultery. Mary then later finds a wonderful man to marry, and she does, has a happy life. Bob repents. He realizes what he's done. Spends a few years getting himself right with Jesus and the universe and then decides, um, I found somebody who loves me. I love them back. We both love Jesus. We say, no, Bob, you're never allowed to be married. Never, 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 never. Because you're the guilty party. That was another phrase. Adulterous marriage, living in adultery, you are the guilty party. Guilty parties are never allowed to remarry unless they remarry their original spouse. Now, those of you that are getting headaches and thinking you might want to turn this off, you might want to. But you might want to follow this along because we are going to look at the way scripture is used and misused and the way that these teachings arise and how we can combat them. Not, and this will just be there for, for you if this is not an issue for you. This will be a template that you can then lay over other teachings that you've been told the church has, quote, always taught, end of quote. By the way, there are some who would say, Mary has the right to remarry, but we don't trust her. This is very painful. Very, very painful. I have um, two papers here, which you cannot find. I mean, they are so far out of print. However, we're going to put some you know, information up there so that you can try. Every so often one may pop up on Amazon and be used. This is a very, very thin book. Um, it's very, very small type as well. Um, what, about 17, 18, 20 pages. Adulterous Marriages by Daryl Foltz, F-O-L-T-Z. I've never met him. I do not know him. This was sent to me uh, back when I was still in Scotland. Uh, I would say probably around 85. Uh, no, I'm sorry, around 82. And then uh, there was a, a paper that was put out for a while by Churches of Christ, uh, by members of the Churches of Christ. Let me explain that. Churches of Christ have no official papers. However, there are many papers put out by members of the Churches of Christ. And over the years, these things have included a large number of papers, Firm Foundation, Gospel Advocate, uh, 20th Century Christian, now 21st Century Christian, on and on and on, you know, the Gospel Banner. Uh, some of them were very, very hateful. Um, you, you had uh, uh, Contending for the Faith, Spiritual Sword. Uh, you had um, the Heretic Detector. That one didn't last long, but what a great name. And Thrust was, as you can see here, a journal devoted to the refutation of denominational dogmas because the Churches of Christ teach that they are the original church. They are not a denomination. All other churches are. Um, and this is in volume six, issue one of Thrust. Again, 
so long out of print. I do not know how to tell you how to find them. Um, Jerry Moffat was the editor of it. Some of you will remember that name. This was a uh, debate between two men, one saying this, what I just told you about adulterous marriages and the like, and the other one saying, no, that's not what the Greek says. That's not what God says. And of course they do not resolve it. It's the same talking past. Later on, you could get the uh, Connolly-Hicks debate on marriage, much thicker than this. And it really covers the same ground. All right. But the reason I bring this up now is because I want to read from this. Remember I said that many churches would say Mary could marry again, but I don't, I don't really trust her. I heard all my life from preachers saying the innocent party gets to divorce, but I've never met an innocent party. And then they'd go on to explain, well, maybe Bob committed adultery because Mary wasn't engaged sexually with Bob enough. Or maybe she was a nag, or maybe she just didn't show it. You know, she was cold, frigid. Yeah, those words were used from the pulpit. Um, and therefore, although she did not commit sexual sin, she drove him to it. Poor wee Bob. It's not his fault. It's always the powerful woman, not the man who actually gets to run everything. It's just bizarre. If you think I'm really exaggerating here, one of the big leaders of the church in the last century for many decades was Roy Lanier Sr. And then his son, Roy Lanier Jr., took up the mantle. Uh, they published papers, they wrote things, they went around and they, they nailed, nailed down this stuff. Let me just say from him, Roy Lanier Sr., out of the Firm Foundation, December 1st, 1964, quote, when one divorces for trivial causes and marries again, he enters into an unholy union the union is unholy because God holds him bound to his first partner. And then he quotes, uh, if God and it goes on, but if God refused to join them, they're not married in God's sight. That's another phrase you will hear a lot. And if they live together, they are living in adultery. And then he goes further, quote, if one who has divorced his companion for fornication, let's see, should ask me to perform the, the ceremony for a second marriage. So now Mary has divorced Bob for sexual sin. Now Mary has gone to Roy Lanier Sr. and asked, would you do my wedding to this man? In capital letters, he writes, I would refuse. Back to normal letters. Do I believe God will join them if they have the scriptural right to marry? I cannot have perfect knowledge of the circumstance which God has. I must depend upon the party involved to tell me the truth about their divorce. There's a possibility that the party does not know the truth. So to be on the safe side, I've made it a long time rule to perform no ceremony for one who has been divorced. Why, listen, why take a chance of being a co-worker and servant of Satan? A lot of people out there right now are nodding their heads because they heard that attitude, they saw that attitude, or they were victims of that attitude. This is not exaggeration. This was mainline teaching we saw all the time. And we heard all the time, it was drummed into us. 
I do want to stress that many, many of the surviving churches of Christ do not teach this in this way. They teach it in a different way, in a more loving sounding way. And then there are more and more churches of Christ that are not teaching this, that are instead teaching what I plan to teach to you in this long form video today. So don't tar everybody with the same brush, all right? Um, this different groups have come out and said, we're holding to this and others have said, no, that's not what God said. But in case you think it's just Royal Lanier, no, remember I said the spiritual sword came out of Memphis, might still be published. I was really shocked to find out the Gospel Advocate was still being published because I hadn't seen a copy of it in probably 20, maybe 25 years. And then I preached a sermon and uh, the editor of it called me a heretic. So somebody let me know. And I went, oh, it's still out there. January 1955 issue of The Spiritual Sword spent 48 pages backing up what Roland Neer just said and I read it to you. As it's God's will that every divorced and remarried person must separate immediately. And that only with rare exceptions could their first union even be okay, going back to their first. This would mean that divorced people are forced into celibacy and their kids, what's gonna to happen to the kids? What's gonna to happen to the kids? We were always basically told, well, that's not our problem. We didn't cause that problem, that's their problem. And we're only telling them that because we love them. I heard that all my life. I still get that. In emails attacking me, my character, my wife, my church, my faith, and they will say, I'm only doing this because, and they'll write letters to people you know. If they hear, oh, they're friends on Facebook, let me write them. And they're saying, I'm only doing this because I love you. No, they're not. You're doing it because you're on a power trip, you're a hater, and you're causing division. Those who cause division in scripture had a name, heretic. It is the devil who slanders. Don't join Team Satan. It's awful. But they'll just, I, I only tell you this because I love you. No, you don't. And nobody believes you do. So stop it. Well, what's the, um, and by the way, they even wrote the Spiritual Sword, the only safe course is to refuse to perform a wedding for all divorced people, even if they say they were innocent. Even if Mary says, look, here are the receipts. Here are the text messages. Here are the, the love letters. He's had affairs with 52 women. Yeah, we know. And I stayed faithful. Oh, well, you see, we can't really know that. By the way, it wasn't all misogynistic because we would have done that to Bob if he had the receipts on Mary. Bob would still have been out of luck with us. He could go get married, you know, at, at the courthouse, but we would always look askance at him as in maybe, Maybe you're all right, maybe you're not. He would never have a chance to be an elder, a deacon, or, or teach a Bible class in our churches. He would be not just a second class, but probably a third, fourth class member. And we didn't, by the way, in Churches of Christ, you don't have those listed, there's no official, but you pretty much figure out where you are in the pecking order, uh, and so it's unofficial. We're just not picking you. And if you volunteer, we're just gonna say, well, We've had some people that are concerned. We've heard some things. And just to keep the peace, so that you need to be quiet. 
Oh my goodness. The number of times I heard this. Oh, it keeps going. Uh, in March 8th, 1977, the Firm Foundation, another paper put out by some members of the Churches of Christ, Calvin Warpula, a name which Church of Christ people of the last century know well, quotes, this author, he means him, contends that the Bible teaches that all adulterous marriages violating the laws of Jesus Christ in Matthew 5 and 19 must be repented of and, capital letters, dissolved upon conversion to Christ. So, if you are married, divorced, and remarried, we can't baptize you. Because to repent of your sin, you would have to leave your current husband because your sin is not your marriage. Your sin is living with that person sexually. That, all those sex opportunities, <laughs> married people, all of those um, are sin. They're, they're acts of adultery. So you're showing you did not repent and therefore we cannot baptize you. Yeah, I saw that happen a lot. I've even had couples come forward, new families, and they want to be baptized. And then talking to them, we find out, well, Bob, you, we can baptize you. Mary, no, we can't. And now we look at Bob and go, wait, you're married to a person that you're not supposed to be married to because she's supposed to be married to George. So we can't baptize any of you until you split up because we love you. And this is what God says. By the way, did God say this? We'll get to that. We need to set up the problem first. Uh, let's go. Let's see, yeah, the man, he goes on. If celibacy can be demanded of a believer after baptism and he or she cannot seek a sexual partner, then celibacy can be demanded of a person who, who has fouled up his life with sin, adultery, and broken marriage. Jesus never lost his temper except he got really angry at the religiously arrogant and he said you you go heaven you search heaven and earth to find a new convert and then you bind on them more rules than you can carry and breaks them he breaks them and then he says in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrine the commandments of men by the way that doesn't just carry the uh, that doesn't just refer to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There's a whole lot of things people are teaching did not come from God and are not to be bound on you. But um, it goes further. Uh, by the way, God said it's not good for a man to be alone. These people say if you want to be saved, you'd better be alone. And now. And about your kids, sorry, not our problem. You know, we love you. That's why we're telling you this. Uh, Paul says, because of fornication, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. These guys would say, in narrow circumstances. And in fact, we wouldn't even let Bob and Mary live together as roommates. You know why? Because we just assume that won't work. They're going to, you know, somebody's going to see somebody in a bathrobe. I heard that phrase. And others going in and out of the bathroom. Somebody's going to see somebody with tussled hair in the morning and then it's just going to... Uh, just the horror of that being said in Bible classes, in pulpits, in papers that are distributed for people to read and pass on. 
because they didn't have the internet. Now they can do it on the internet, and they do. But there's so many problems. By the way, it was the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy chapter 4 who said, watch out for those who forbid to marry because they're teaching doctrines of demons. Paul said, let each man have her husband and wife. By the way, they get away with this by saying, well, they're not really husband and wife. They're husband and wife to the first marriage only ever, period. That's it. You see, here's the thing. If you want to outlaw your God, best of luck. But God didn't write a law book. He wrote the scriptures as we're coming up to point us to Jesus. We look at Jesus, then the rest of the New Testament is, well, what did they do with Jesus? But if you're trying to read the Bible as a, a law book for all times and all cultures, you will, you will have happened to you what happened to you. And that is as soon as people got the Bible and were told, you know, it's in their little hands, and now we can each decide what it means. We went from, you know, Roman Catholic Church and a few splinter bits to uh, thousands of denominations that continue to rise and die and split because they're trying to read the Bible as a rule book rather than as the finger that points to Jesus. Let's look at Jesus. And we will, we will. There's a reason it's called long form. You gotta be patient. Interesting, isn't it, that God never speaks in these terms, adulterous marriages, living in adultery. He never does. In fact, let's take a look at a very serious, horrific example. The David and Bathsheba, their first sexual encounter was a rape. There's no question. And you might say, the Bible doesn't say it's a rape. Well, it doesn't have to because the king sends men to her to bring her into his bedchamber. She has no agency. She has no choice. She has no standing. He has all of those to the max. He gets her pregnant. She sends a note saying, I am with child. David, instead of owning up and going to a soldier who's been loyal to him and saying, I raped your wife, probably repeatedly, while you were off fighting for my kingdom and I was just hanging around the palace. And don't think of palaces as European palaces. Just basically a few walls, some hangings, you know, you know, a little art to brighten things up in the corner. Instead of doing that, he arranges for Uriah to be killed. I, there's nothing good about this story. When Nathan is sent by God to confront Nathan, uh, David about what he did, David, when he realizes it, repents and repents bitterly. Doesn't bring Uriah back. Doesn't change the fact that uh, David and Bathsheba are not shown to have a great, long, loving relationship. But, and it, it just, it causes misery. Although Bathsheba's son will rule, um, that's, I guess, one little brightness in a horrible story. But there is something there interesting. Uh, the Bible, even after David rapes her and she's pregnant and Uriah's dead, refers to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Until after David goes through what, what appears to be very sincere, heart-wrenching repentance. And from that time on in scripture, she's called the wife of David. Um, 
did God then not understand the concept of adulterous marriages and living in adultery? No, God never used those terms. And in fact, it was God who gave us the right to divorce. He's the one who gave Moses the command to hand people a writ of divorcement to show so a woman couldn't be abandoned. She had a paper to say, I am free and I am clear to marry and go on with my life. That way men could not mistreat and desert their women as they had been doing. God had rides into the protection of women again and again and again, and especially in the person of Jesus. So taking a look at our view of marriage, so one and done, if you're married, that is it, is a sacramental view of marriage. In other words, it brings you blessings and that if you break it, then you do not receive blessing. It's very much a Roman Catholic view. Churches of Christ have a lot of Catholic attitudes and it infuriates them when you say so. I know because I was raised in, I taught it. Uh, I didn't teach all of this stuff, but I kind of did, you know, skirting the edges, trying to be the nice guy. Because uh, I didn't know what else to do until I started reading on my own that what about thing we've been doing for two years. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change you and not in ways that's gonna make you popular sometimes. But even, however, in the churches of Christ, there have been great names that have said, no, no, no. But before I do that, let me tell you how it got started. Because from the earliest days of the churches of Christ in the 1800s, 1809 is looked upon as their founding uh, because of um, the, the writing of the uh, Declaration and Address by Thomas Campbell, endorsed by his son, Alexander Campbell. Church of Christ people will say they were founded in 33 AD, that they are an exact copy of the New Testament church, but anybody who knows history and anybody who knows what New Testament churches look like, no, they don't look anything like that. Uh, and I'm sorry, but that's, that's the truth. So that said, and I know I've just lost some people. I know some people just hung up and okay, Okay, you don't have to listen to me to go to heaven. You, you really don't. What happened? Well, early teachers and the Lanier's and others, uh, senior at first, wrote a series of letters to the Gospel Advocate that were printed arguing for this teaching. And two young men, Thomas Warren and Garland Elkins, began eating this up. And as they began their speaking and writing careers in the 30s and 40s of the 1900s, they took these letters as their inspiration. And their assertions were these. Marriage was for life between a man and a woman. Two, any breaking of that marriage was adulterous unless it was for the express and stated reason of proven adultery, by which is meant sexual intercourse by one of the partners and only then if the other partner could establish their innocence. By the way, nobody can prove innocence. So that's a gotcha. Three, any remarriage by the guilty partner was not a real marriage. It was not a marriage in the eyes of God. It was an adulterous marriage and any sexual activities between the new partners was adulterous. Four, Repentance required, at a minimum, leaving the new marriage and 
preferably returning to the first marriage, even if the second so-called marriage, yes, that's what it says, so-called marriage produced children. Five, guilty partners could never remarry. Six, any divorce for any other reason was not a real end to the marriage. Domestic abuse, no matter how horrific. Now, what if a man killed a couple of his children, brutalized them, raped his babies? He's in prison now. Can the wife, well, if he raped them, yes. But if he killed them, no. No, she can never remarry. Because that's, that's not sex. People, will, you'll see in a bit how that tragic, how we came to that tragic error. But not how he stayed there. We stayed there out of arrogance. Um, seven, any remarriage after a divorce for any other cause other than sexual sin, including battery, alcoholism, abandonment, etc., is adulterous. And the adultery would only end when the second liaison ends and the original mates are reconciled. And eight, that baptism of divorced and remarried people was useless, did not save, meant nothing because they had not repented or they would be with their first mate or at a minimum celibate and alone. They were not allowed to be considered members of the church. Uh, Churches of Christ use the, the phrase the church to mean only them. So you'll hear people say, are they members of the church? And you might be talking about Pope Francis or Mother Teresa, or you might be talking about, you know, Billy Graham or Charles Spurgeon. They'll say, well, they're not a member of the church. There are some other groups that do that too, mainly cultic groups like Scientology. Um, It's pretty scary once you realize that. This said, early on for the first 35, 45 years, there was real pushback against Warren and Elkins and Lanier. And the pushback was some pretty big names. Foy E. Wallace Jr., who was one of the most conservative, harsh speakers of the last century, called this teaching of Lanier, Warren, and Elkins a damnable presumption. And he was right. There were others like C.R. Nichols, R.L. Whiteside, G.C. Brewer, B.C. Goodpasture, they loved initials, N.B. Hardiman, H. Leo Bowles, Leslie G. Thomas, a bunch of, and and if you're Church of Christ people that know any history, if you're over 65 or so, you would have heard these names, seen these names on your tracks, your brochures, in your papers, uh, on books in a church library. They rejected this and they spoke extensively against it. They referred back to Campbell, Scott, and other uh, early restoration movement or American um, restoration movement, it's sometimes called, all of whom rejected a sacramental view of marriage. But the Lanier Warren Elkins group got a hold of more printing presses. This is pre-internet. They began putting this out there that if you did not agree with these things, you didn't agree with Jesus, you didn't believe the Bible, you were sending people to a devil's hell, and you were inviting horrors upon yourself. And in Churches of Christ, peer pressure is a real thing. 
I can remember being in Scotland and we wanted to start a, a church where we were in our town. The problem was there was a cult that used the name Church of Christ and that cult would go door to door. And so we said, um, there are other names for the church in the Bible, Church of the Firstborn, Church of God, Church of the Living God, The Way. Can we choose another name so that we're not confused with this? And the people in America said, no, because what if there's a visitor from America who's going through trying to find the Church of Christ, they wouldn't be able to find you. That, that was a stated reason. But you know what the real reason is? Because although we said there were other names, we didn't believe it. And if somebody did another name, like a little church in Northeast Ohio did, when they call it in Cuyahoga Falls, they called themselves the Church of the Falls or the Church in the Falls. And then little letters, you know, it, I think it said in Fellowship of Churches of Christ, immediately the peer pressure against them was horrendous. They did not buckle and they have not buckled to this day if, I'm, if I've heard correctly. But I mean, it was, they were written up in these papers. Nobody wanted to get written up. If you were written up, you were dead. Your, your teaching, preaching career was over. Your congregation would not be fellowshipped. It was, uh, yes, even though the Bible gives us no mechanism to disfellowship a whole church, a congregation, I've received letters signed by elders from churches I've never heard of saying, we are out of fellowship. We disfellowship your church. Not our safe harbor, we haven't got those, but other churches of Christ I've been with. Why would they send such things? Well, first of all, we were never in fellowship with them. We didn't know they existed. So it's kind of like, okay, what are the ramifications of this? I, I, I don't feel a great loss at this point. But they wanted us to. It was a peer pressure move. And most churches of Christ, for most of the Church of Christ history, fall in line out of that shame and fear-based pressure. Some will even just say, but when my mother comes, you know, I don't have a problem with the instruments, or I don't have a problem with women participating in worship, but when my mother comes, she's old school Church of Christ, and it's, so when they're in town, I can't come here. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of times I've experienced that, and even now at our safe harbor, our viewership drops quite a bit on Mother's Day, uh, around Christmas or Easter, because we know that, or uh, spring break, because we know parents are now with the kids and the kids are, or the parents, either one are going, oh, this is the church we go to over here. It's a brick and mortar thing. They're, they're afraid that if their parents found that they had some freedom in Christ, that the pressure would start. I still get the pressure. They still name me and shame me. I have been accused of so many things. I would have had to have lived about five lives of crime to do it. The fact is, you can accuse me of an awful lot of sin because I've been a sinful man. I have really done wrong and I have failed to do right. And I'm open about that. I think you've, if you've heard me more than five or six sermons, you know I'm very open about that. I need Jesus just like you do. I'm no more holy than you are. I'm tempted just like you are. But I'm no longer susceptible to peer pressure. And I will not buckle. And I will not teach a gospel based on fear and shame. But that's what this is. By the way, in Scripture, we find that marriages, indeed, even when parties to the marriage remain uh, alive, it is a real marriage. 
Jesus didn't say to the woman at the well, you've had one husband and four so-called husbands. He said, no, you have five husbands. He looked upon each of them as a husband. And now she was living with somebody who wasn't her husband. So he recognized, he didn't say your so-called husband. <laughs> By the way, I had a, had a man call back before cell phones, he had to call your house. And he'd written articles against me and tried to peer pressure and shame my church into kicking me out to the like. And this was back, oh my goodness, this would have been back in the 1990s. And he called uh, the church building to try to fight with me and I was out on the road. So he called my, my house and he uh, got Cammy, Miss Cammy, sweet Miss Cammy. And whenever she answered the phone, he said, is this Patrick Mead's so-called wife? Now, let me stress, my wife and I have never been married to anybody but us. We got married really early, super early for her. I'm four years older than her and we've never divorced. We're the only ones anybody's ever had. It, it was that he, he wanted to make sure she understood we had no standing before God, man, or him because we differed with them on different subjects. How's that? Because the Bible does say, go ye into all the world and insult and shame other people, except it doesn't. Oh, well, let's look at this, shall we? Matthew chapter five, passage that started it all. Long form video I means sometimes I'm going to have to take a drink. Sometimes I'm going to gulp. <laughs> it's a, it can be a task. Uh, if I had, if, if our safe Harbor had a bit more equipment and the money to hire one more person, we could actually do videos where you had the verses put up and you have cut shots and we could do all that. We just don't have that. So I hope that our threadbare way of getting things out, is of value to you. Those of you who do give, you're the only reason that I can sit here today and do this rather than head off to teach law enforcement or head up to the med schools and teach. You're allowing me to do this and that means the world to me. But right where we are right now, we can't do anything fancier than these. And I do apologize for that. So you're gonna have to take time for me to take a drink and have a look at scripture. So, Matthew 5, 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Well, that seems to be a little bit out of topic, but it really isn't because he's talking earlier about making commitment and he talks later about oaths. So what, what's going on? Here's the key. Are you ready? For those of you that are hung in there for 50 minutes, God bless you. Here's the key. The definitions of words change. We know this. You look at urban slang and what one word means one day, it doesn't mean another. Gay used to mean that you were brightly colored and happy. Then after a while, it meant that you were homosexual. And then after that, it was meaning lame, like that's really gay. And I'm always going, 
well, that can't be good. If you've used this to label the people and now you're calling it lame, but it changes. You know, something being sick, something being wicked, now kind of means the opposite, except that those phrases are also disappearing. Words change. The, the roughest thing Shakespeare could say about somebody was to call them mischievous. And anything like that to us today. In Scotland to this very day, um, if somebody is, is attractive, now they're not a stunning model, but they're the face, kind of face you would love to go home to and you would love to have in your home. They're called homely. She has such a homely face, such a homely air about her. Now, if you're American, you're over there going, she's sitting right there. Don't say this in front of her. It's a compliment. It's a compliment. They say, this is a face that I'd like to see every day. I'd like to have around me the rest of my life. Words change. We have legal definitions for the word fornication and adultery. To be brief, fornication is sexual contact of any kind. It doesn't have to be intercourse. And so a former president of the U.S. needs to understand that it is still sex. Uh, fornication is sexual contact of any kind between two people who are not married. Our legal definition of adultery is sexual contact between two people who are married, but not to each other. So when you read that into here, you can come up with some of the things that Warren Elkins Lanier and their disciples in the last century have, have come up with. But the problem is that's not the way these words are used in scripture because that's not the definition back then. If you find a list of sins in scripture, you will very often find fornication and adultery listed. But fornication, pornea, means all sexual sin. And that's why in the NIV, they translate it marital unfaithfulness. I'm, I'm, I know why they did it. I think I would have been more comfortable if they said sexual sin, because that's really what, it, what the word meant. But then it said adultery. Well, why didn't you say did she commit sexual sin? Well, because she didn't, you know, how did she commit adultery? How did the woman here, look at this. A, a woman, you can't divorce your wife except for marital unfaithfulness. Because if you do, you cause her to be an adulteress. By the way, there are no Greek words meaning adulteress. It's adulterer. Uh, only in English, well, there are many other languages that do it. A language, and it's disappearing in English, where you put an S or an IT or it, you know, at the end of a word to indicate you're talking about a woman. You don't talk about actresses anymore. I don't know if you noticed that. We, we call them actors. We used to call comedians comedians. You know, no comedian. In English, even, we're dropping that. Um, the NIV did not hear. How in the world do you make, how do, all right. Bob committed sexual sin. So he puts away his, his wife. Um, well, actually, no, that's not what this passage says. Let's back up. I'm, I'm going into another passage in my head. Bob sees uh, Sally, and Sally's good looking, and she's really interested in Bob. Mary's getting a little old and not as interested in Bob physically, she used to be. So he puts her away. He divorces her. He's going to go marry Sally. The scripture here says that makes Mary an adulterer. She has, she's committed adultery. How? 
because the word adultery very often included um, sexual sin as a cause. But the act of adultery is the breaking of covenant. And that's the secret. That once you understand how the Bible uses the word adultery, it doesn't always mean sex. It often does. But it doesn't always. Sex is fornication. Adultery is the breaking of covenant. And in the book of Revelation, it even talks about all of these different people who don't have a part of the kingdom and part of them are truce breakers. They made a covenant and they broke it. Now, that said, let's, um, oh, and by the way, there are so many things I wanna say. Even in long form, it's hard to get them all out. Some people will object and say, but, 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 but wait, John the Baptist told Herod he had his brother's wife, therefore God considered them still married. No, if you look at Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 24, he was talking about the law of, you cannot have your brother's wife. That's incest. That was expressly against the Levitical and Deuteronomic law. That's what John was talking about. So it wasn't about adulterous marriages and it wasn't about living in adultery. Lanier made much of the statement Jesus made, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. But he didn't deal with the fact that that statement does not prove his point or even circle his point, much less land and make it. To prove this point, it would have to say what God has joined together, it is impossible for man to put asunder. By saying what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, it shows it is possible for man to put this asunder. It's possible for marriage to end. And then a new beginning can occur the Old Testament is full of teachings showing that marriages end and new ones begin. Deuteronomy 24. Write these down or hit the pause button. Uh, Ezra chapter 10, and that's a pretty horrific ending. Ezra there thinks God requires them to end their marriage to anybody who wasn't Jewish and send their wives and their children out into the desert to fend for themselves. I don't think God said that, but Ezra thought so, and Nehemiah agreed in Nehemiah 13. Exodus 21, verse 4 in particular. In fact, not only was marriage breakable, we find some of the prophets insisting that it be broken and that then the men were free to marry. Now, misogynistic, horrific, almost genocidal, yep, yep. We've talked before about the Old Testament, the New Testament, and we may have to do a long form on that because I've found a lot of people don't really get how to look for these. We have nearly 500 videos up and they, well, for example, on this one, and I'm not insulting anybody. This is just our reality. When I put up the options of whether I do long form Monday morning messages or sermon, uh, at least five people said, put it on YouTube. Not knowing we've been on YouTube three times a week minimum for the last nearly three years. I don't know how they, if they follow me on social media, how they never knew that. It's rather shocking, but there you go. Anyway, uh, we may have to do a long form on how we handle the Old Testament and some of those sayings, but for now, it is significant that in all theological literature, the first time that the linear doctrine, which is what I will call it, uh, even though it's less than 100 years old, 
is, it is not found in any church until the Roman Catholic Church in the Council of Trent, 1563. 1563, it was the first time any church made a law that marriage was permanent, sacramental, and cannot be dissolved. In fact, that was the sin of Henry VIII in the eyes of the Catholic Church, his divorce. Henry VIII killed a lot of people, including several of his wives, but that didn't get him kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church. It was divorcing and remarrying that ended his relationship with the Catholic Church. Isn't it amazing? What we choose to stack up is most important. How about in Matthew 19? Because that's the other time, that's the other passage people go to, not understanding definitions of terms. So let's go. Um, Matthew chapter 19. And here we go. Starting at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Boom. Happens all the time, people. I travel. I travel a lot. And for about 40 years, I had to get used to it. But some people would come and they would ask questions. And I would know this isn't because they want to know the answer. They want me to say what I believe and get myself in trouble so that they can shun me. By the way, I told them what I believe. Because your shunning me does not hurt me because Jesus has accepted me. By the way, he's accepted you too. So stop trying to do his job. All right? Besides that, they came to test him. They said, is it lawful? For a man to divorce his wife for any reason. Well, there were two schools of thought that were arguing this out, Shammai and Hillel, two different rabbis. One said that you could divorce your wife for any uncleanness, which is what Leviticus and Deuteronomy both said. Um, but he defined uncleanness as anything, even a burned meal. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Whereas the other said, no, no, it has to be for sexual uncleanness. It has, to be, it has to be something which is so awful, it breaks the covenant. And so the Pharisees are saying, all right, you know, Jesus, pick a side. People try that with me as well, with politics and issues all the time. Doesn't work. Shouldn't work for you. People ask you your opinion on things. Here's a secret of life. You don't have to tell them. You want to know a second secret of life? You don't even have to have an opinion on everything. Wow. All right. Jesus speaks. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, you might be shocked to know this. But the Bible never explains what a wedding is. It never explains when you are married. You know, not married, not married, not married, then this happens, married. There are a lot of books written by a lot of Christians that act as if he did and grab a whole bunch of passages and they talk about covenant. Covenant is hugely important and marriage absolutely is a covenant, but they are speaking far too much. We need to be more humble about this. This is just what God's intention is, is that a man and a woman join together. Notice there's no benefit of clergy here, as they used to call it. There's no community greeting. There's no license and the like. And I'm not saying, therefore, ignore the laws of the state. I'm not saying that. 
Uh, although I do understand those, some of those who have chosen to ignore the laws of the state, especially, by the way, I know this is a bit off topic, we'll get right back. You can have two widowed people who are, they, they are devout Christians, they married devout Christians, their mates died. Later, they find each other, they fall in love, they need companionship, they want to be with each other. But because of the rules and laws in the United States, if they get married, it'll be instant poverty because they lose benefits. There are over 1,700 changes that take place under law when you get married in America. It's horrific. There is something even called the marriage penalty in income tax. And they've said, what can we do? And I'm not gonna say what I do because I'm, you know, I don't want to admit to something online. How's that? But what I will say is, I don't see a problem with them being married in the eyes of God, making a covenant with each other and not involving the state, unless there's a fraud involved. If there's a fraud, you know, somebody's getting a dead husband's pension uh, and it should, she should now rely upon his pension or he's getting a dead wife's pension, there can be fraud. We don't do fraud, period. Um, but you understand what I mean? We've complicated this. The Bible didn't complicate it. These are two people come together. They've agreed to be with each other for life. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Moses replied, Moses permitted. You know, they're phrasing, they said, why then didn't Moses give? No, God gave Moses the rule about divorce, that a man had to give her a paper saying, she's blameless and free. But they're saying, why did Moses command? Moses didn't command. Jesus said, no, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. In other words, you were mistreating your wives. You were abandoning them. You were not giving them the support they deserved. My wife and I have been together for 44 years. We do not anticipate a divorce. If a divorce occurred, would I be honorable if I gave her no pennies? nothing from the marriage at all. I take the house, I take the income. I, I, maybe even I keep the stuff I bought for her, but I bought it, so it's mine, best of luck. You see that kind of horrific cruelty was going on. And God said, no, no, no. You wanna put her away, you've gotta give her a paper that says she's blameless and free. And that paper has to be respected in, uh, among all the Jews. And it was, but it was not that way from the beginning. In other words, that was not God's plan A. Can we all agree that God's plan A has not always been what's occurred in our lives? I think I'm on plan double Z index point zero four. And I don't say that bragging, but it's bragging about anything. It's bragging about the grace and patience of God. But plan A didn't involve divorce. Yeah, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for, and the NIV once again says, marital unfaithfulness, the real word there is fornication or pornea, sexual sin, and marries another woman, commits adultery. How, how do you, wait, wait. If adultery is sexual sin, and we have Bob and Mary, they're back, 
By the way, if you're a married couple listening to this, your names are Bob and Mary, I'd like to apologize for using your names. All right, Bob, Mary is abusive. She scratches him, punches him, stabs him with scissors. Uh, she's, um, you know, she kicks his dog. She's just a really hard person. And Bob goes, I'm not doing this. I divorce you. And now Bob's committed adultery. Wait, wait, what? If adultery is sexual sin, how'd that happen? Well, adultery isn't sexual sin. But I want to go back to Matthew chapter 5. You ready for this? I tell you that if anybody divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. How, how, did, how does she become an adulteress just because she got divorced? Preachers are our day. I heard it from pulpits. Heard it in Bible classes. Oh, she'll have sex eventually. I will allow you a moment to get your thoughts back under control. How low a view of humanity must you have? How misogynistic, in this particular case, must you be to assume that a woman cannot control her sexual desires? Therefore, if she's put away, because for any reason, eventually she's going to have to, you know, go have sex with somebody. What an evil, slanderous thing to say. And yet they had to say it because their, trans, their um, definitions of terms required it. Now, when you have definitions that require an abomination, so you have to adjust everything to make it abomination light, maybe you should rethink your definitions. To read back into scripture what you've already decided is called scholasticism. Don't do that. Let the scripture speak to you. Now, back to um, Matthew 19. The disciples, when they heard this, what? then it's better that nobody get married because you know, adultery is pretty serious stuff to them. Breaking covenant, serious stuff to them. By the way, um, in the Old Testament, you get stoned for, and it's not like in the hippie way getting stoned. You were killed by people throwing rocks at you. Uh, horrific. A horrible way to die if you were caught in sexual sin. In fact, you remember the, the story in John, it's in later editions of John, where the woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus, and they say, the law of Moses says we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And that was all a test, because they knew if he said, well, in stoner, they'd run to the Romans, because you're not allowed to stone people. And if he said, well, we can't stone her because the Roman law, they'd run around saying, he doesn't believe in Moses. He has uh, sub subsumed the law of Moses under the law of man. In other words, they were there to trap him, not to find the truth. It happens a lot. By the way, it still happens to me, but not often, because I'm not usually in those church settings very much. Um, most of my church work is done entirely within our safe harbor and the house churches scattered across the globe. Uh, but it does still happen via email. You know, recently somebody sent me, well, I have to be rebaptized to be a member of your church. I said, no, aha, I caught you. 
And I'm going, well, no, you didn't catch me. I still say that. And he kept coming at me. I'm going, no, you still didn't catch me. I still get those. Still try to answer them. But I do stop after a few times if they're just being mean. I, a bulldog can win a, a fight with a skunk every time. But it's not worth it. So moving on, what does he say? They say it's better, you know, how would you marry somebody? Because it could go terribly wrong. And then you, you have to put them away. And now you are an adulterer. You are a breaker of covenant. And Jesus says something fascinating. Matthew 19, verse 11. Not everybody can accept this word, but only those to whom it was given. I used to do a lot of marriage seminars, probably still could, because I've been married a long time and used to be a shrink, so I've read all the books and worked, worked with a lot of married couples. Um, I'm not a counselor anymore, but probably still could. Anyway, and I can remember once at our home congregation, uh, when we first moved back to America, they would said, well, do one for us. And I said, great, and we advertised it in the community. And this one lady uh, on her way out, um, as we advertised it before it happened, said, I don't see why we have to do a marriage seminar. And I looked at her and I said, well, some people need a little bit of extra help. And she goes, well, me and my husband, we've been married for, I don't know, 187 years. And we've never had an argument. We've never even thought about divorce. Of course, in my head immediately, I'm thinking, I bet he did. But I don't, I try not to say that out loud. I'm not a really good person inside sometimes. And I really pray for filters. Uh, before it lands on the ears of another. So I went, okay. And she goes, I just don't think, I, I think if people just relied on Jesus more, they wouldn't, we wouldn't need these things. And I finally decided, I gotta say something. And I'm, I'm gonna call her Gertrude, because that wasn't her name. Gertrude, I said, I want you to consider something. And she said, what? I said, is it possible that you're misreading the situation? Is it? You're, you're looking, you're saying you and your husband have never had a real struggle. You've never had an argument that blew up into dangerous territory. We never have. Okay, I believe you. Um, you look upon that as a sign of your spiritual maturity and your relationship to Christ, perhaps even, even your knowledge and training. But what if it's because God knew you couldn't handle difficulty, so he made sure you married somebody at where there wouldn't be any? And therefore, it's not a sign of your strength that you've had no arguments, but a sign of your weakness and the graciousness of God. That did not win me any points, although she and I later became quite close very good friends. And she's gone on to see Jesus now. I've been married for 44 years. I do not assume that's because I'm a great husband. I think Cammie's a great wife, but I don't assume that either. I, I assume it's because God's grace, he gave that to me. But I also see other people that have not been so blessed. When people ask me for one bit of marriage device, I always give the same thing, and that is marry Cammie. Uh, too late, sorry. Jesus said, not everybody is going to be able to do this. This is God's plan A, but not everybody. To some it will be given. To some it will not be given. 
Why do we not talk about that? God blesses people in different ways. He even goes further. Some are born eunuchs because they were, some are eunuchs because they're born that way. Some were uh, made that way by men. Others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept it should accept it. In other words, everybody's situation is different. And some people can be celibate. Some people cannot be. But whatever, if you can accept plan A, you can accept it. But he doesn't indicate there aren't plan B, C's, and D's out there for you. And by the way, some people didn't marry Mr. or Miss Wright till the second or third time. And they're super happy and they serve God continually. Is God holding over them earlier failures? If he is, may I ask, what did he do with all the other failures? You know, failures of um, sins of omission and commission. We've all had them. Why is adultery the one that uh, has got to follow you all your life, like the Scarlet Letter in a Nathaniel Hawthorne novel? But notice, notice this. Adultery doesn't mean sexual sin. Therefore, all those arguments are void that Lanier, Warren, and Elkins and their acolytes through the years, Calvin Warpula, Spiritual Sword, Contending for the Faith, all of those papers. And by the way, that drives them to a very detailed study of the Greek, aorist principle of this, that, and the other. And I've read all that. I'm not a Greek expert by any stretch. Uh, I'm, in fact, I don't read Greek. I have to have tons of reference materials and a couple of professors to help me through it. But I've done a survey of all the literature. And when I, you know me by now, when I say I've done a survey of all the literature, it's pretty much all the literature. And what I find is that Greek experts disagree about 50-50 on whether this is a continuing action or whether it is a, uh, a one-time event. So if something is vague and not provable, Perhaps we shouldn't use it as a cudgel to beat those trying to get to Jesus. Just a thought. So where in the Bible does it say adultery means something other than sexual sin? Lots of places. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, the prophet had warned them uh, not to use idols, but they'd used idols. And he said, you have committed adultery with wood and stone. Well, there were no sexual activities with wood and stone. What they had done was they had a covenant with God. They broke it by going with the idol. That's adulterous. They are adulterers now. Now they have to repent of being an adulterer. Then in um, um, Matthew 12, verse 39, and James 4, 4, adultery is used both times as a sign of being unfaithful to God, not sexual sin at all. Um, in Matthew chapter 5, by the way, where we started the day, um, down in verses 27, 28, adultery means uh, lust in your heart. Well, there was no sexual sin except inside. Nobody saw it, nobody knew it, just you. Uh, are you an adulterer forever now? Well, it was Martin Luther, not an ancient Chinese proverb, like I always, was always taught. It was Martin Luther that said, uh, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. You don't, you know, you're going to have sexual thoughts. Almost everybody. There are some people that are asexual 
and, and they're not going to, but man, are they the minority. You're going to have sexual thoughts, but that doesn't mean you're an adulterer. It's adulterous whenever you decide that that's your play field and it runs your life. By the way, I was with a group of young men who approached Roy Lanier Sr. when he was in his late seventies. And this was at the Bear Valley Church of Christ in Denver, which for years did the Bear Valley uh, School of Preaching and then changed it to Bear Valley School of Biblical Studies, which is a very, very, very far to the right edge of the Churches of Christ. Uh, rather like the Memphis School of Preaching was for many years, I don't know if they're even around, the West, Virgi West Virginia School of Preaching. Schools of Preaching were non-college university-based, just training preachers. So that's it. But a group of young men uh, approached uh, Roy Lanier Sr. because you know, he was a Christian and he was just trying to do the best he could. It was just his doctrines were being so hateful and divisive on this one point. But we weren't even thinking about that. You know, I, I did not attend the school, by the way. I married a girl who went there. But I had a brother-in-law that attended the school. And they asked Brother Lanier, when does lust stop being a problem? And Brother Lanier in his 70s thought for a moment and said, not yet. If we call adultery what he calls adultery, then he committed adultery in his heart. What are the consequences for him? Is it a once act and you're done, you're an adulterer? You gotta be really careful. You start swinging around the swords, you know, a sword, it has two edges, it can cut you coming back. And somebody can take that away from you and use it on you. A married person who commits sexual sin commits adultery because they broken covenant. The way they broke covenant was fornication, pornea, or as NIV calls it, marital unfaithfulness. I just don't like that term. I don't think it covers exactly what sexual sin would cover. But if you put away your wife and she didn't, um, she didn't commit adultery. You just don't like her. So you put her away. How did you force her to be an adulteress? Because she can no longer keep her covenant. Boom. That's it. She swore, Mary swore to love, honor, serve, care for, lift up, you know, better or worse, all that other with Bob. And now she can't do it. She made a covenant that she cannot keep because you made her break it. You made her an adulterer. You see why now it's phrased that way? It's not because of sexual sin. It's because you have denied her the ability to keep her word. It could be at that point in time where she didn't want to keep it anyway. That's not the point. You made sure she couldn't do it. Therefore, you have forced her to commit adultery. Has she sinned? No. The breaking of covenant was not up to her. That was up to somebody else. So understand that adultery, that's what, and by the way, in, um, in the Old Testament, when Israel was told, do not make a covenant with Egypt, and they did, God told them through the prophets, you've committed adultery with Egypt. You broke the covenant. Now, let's just, let's just take a look at some of these points that Lanier and later said. 
And they, by the way, they masquerade in saying, this is the original teaching of the church and has been forever. Please remember that long list of preachers in the churches of Christ, every one of whom was looked upon as being very conservative, except perhaps for Leslie Thomas, because he spoke about grace. Um, Foye Wallace Jr. called it a damnable presumption, for goodness sake. And Foye Wallace Jr. was one of the harshest far-right preachers in the Brotherhood for a very long time. But a quick look at the points. We'll show the points we made earlier. We'll show, no, this doesn't work. Is marriage for life only dissolvable by death? Jesus didn't think so. Uh, Lanier and his group go to Romans 7, where Paul goes, a woman is, uh, who is married is bound to her husband so long as he lives. Well, Paul's referring to the old law to show that death ends the marriage vow. He was not trying to say, and he did not say, it's the only thing that, marry, that ends it. You see, here's the thing. You don't have to say everything about something every time you say something about that. You don't. It's rather like this. If I were to say to you, um, I really was shaped and changed by the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. What do most people then feel the need to say? Now, I don't always agree with C.S. Lewis, and there are some things that, I, that he and I would really differ about, but I would think that, you, why, why are you saying that? I get that in emails almost every week. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I love your lesson. I don't agree with everything you're doing. As if you need God to know, I need exit doors here in case there's a problem. You don't have to say everything about something every time you say something about something. And so Paul doesn't have to say, now she's bound to her husband as long as she lives. Or in these 43 other things. He doesn't have to say that because he's using this as an illustration about the old law and the new law and how you can't be married to both. All right? He doesn't say sub subsequent marriages are not real uh, that, and, you know, and that if she only, uh, you know, sexually unites with a new husband later that that's adultery. We don't go through all of that. Lanier missed that somehow. Um, by the way, when he talks about the old, the old law, Paul talks about it. Remember that Deuteronomy 24 and Leviticus 18, a man could put away his wife for sexual sin uh, she had no right to put him away. So, is that still the law? Because Paul referred to the old law in Romans 7. So are you saying that a man can sleep around all he wants to? But because of what Paul quoted there and was referring to, that just means... No, I, I haven't heard anybody say that. I've heard people say a lot of rid ridiculous things, and I have parroted them because I believed them. But I haven't heard anybody say that. I bet somebody has. Um, by the way, there wasn't out for the women back then. They could report the adultery to people. And if enough men believed her, and that's a huge if, even in some religious circles in the Middle East today, then they would stone the guy. But you don't find that happening a great deal in the Old Testament. Not to men. Regardless, by the way, uh, nowhere in Romans 7 is a marriage relationship, a sexual relationship even mentioned. He's using marriage as an illustration of a great principle. You can only show allegiance to one person or one cause at a time. Christ had put the old law away by fulfilling it. Now we follow Christ. That was, it, it, it was like in, Ex, um, I'm sorry, Ephesians 
chapter chapter 5 and chapter 6 when he uses marriage as a symbol you're raising children as a symbol of what God and the church are like the second point I mentioned adultery means the breaking of the marriage vow yep it can only it, they'll say it can be caused only by sexual sin no no sexual sin and adultery are two different terms in Jesus's day and for hundreds of years on both sides of Jesus's day the terms did not start changing until Western governments began to develop law that was, um, this is before the, the end of the monarchies, but they started developing laws that everybody was amenable to, and therefore even kings. So after Magna Carta, then you start having to form and parse different words, but they mean something different today than they did then. I Sometimes whenever I ask um, people, they'll say, you, you, if there's not sexual sin, then you can't, you know, actual sex, then there, you can't break a marriage. I'll say, what about a guy who comes home every day and watches pornography in front of his wife, kids, won't, won't engage with her. That's all he'll do. He's addicted to it, not gonna stop. Middle of the night, gets up, goes, watches it again. Doesn't matter if she's sitting at the breakfast table, he's watching on his phone. Um, and can, she, can she divorce him? Most of the people I ask that, that are in this group say no, really. If your doctrine paints you into that tight a corner, it's time to walk over the paint and get out of the room. It really is. By the way, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 said, there's another way to end a marriage, desertion. He said, if your husband does not want to live with you, you don't have to live with him. He was specifically speaking to women there because women again were being mistreated in marriage. And he said, if he doesn't want to live with you because you're a Christian, you don't have to keep chasing him. You can let him go. And then he uses the phrase, you are no longer under bondage, which was the legal term in the first century for the marriage is dissolved. You are not under obligation to that person. The covenant is broken and gone. Paul used the legal term for, desert, uh, for the ending of a marriage and told her she was free. In fact, he even told people, instead of saying, you gotta repent of your, this new so-called marriage and break up and become celibate or go back to your first partners before we can baptize you, he doesn't say that in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, whatever condition you come to Christ in, be content to stay there. And he's talking about marriage and divorce all through that chapter. Pretty powerful stuff, huh? Remarriages were a fact of life in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus referred to them as real marriages. We've mentioned David and Bathsheba. Uh, we've mentioned the woman at the well. There are other examples. How about that idea that the only way to show repentance is to leave the current union and rejoin the first mate? That is absurd on its face. That would say the only way to repent of divorce is to divorce, which they, in a breathtaking case, of casuistic ratiocination say, well, that's not true since it's not a real divorce because it wasn't a real marriage. Oh, good. Must be nice to be able to def de define terms however you wish to define them without any real standard. To be amenable to a standard means you can't do that. This would require fathers to abandon their children, which again, 
is considered heresy in scripture. Paul tells Timothy that uh, if a man will not provide for his family, he's worse than a heretic. He tells Titus the same thing, different words to both of them. So uh, no, no, how can I have, how can, say you must repent of a sin by committing these other sins? Makes no sense. How about guilty parties can never remarry, but in the Bible they can, they do. And it's called a marriage. Any divorce for any other reasons is not a real end to the marriage. Nope, nope. Paul, 1 Corinthians 7. Also, uh, Jesus said the marriage could end for other reasons. Notice that in Matthew 5. If you put her away, you've ended the marriage for any other reason. There were more reasons, and he referred to it as the end of a marriage. Deuteronomy 24 allowed for more reasons, too. Um, can divorce people be forgiven, even if they're on husband or wife, two, three, or four? I don't know. How good do you think Jesus' sacrifice was? Was it powerful enough to reach somebody who's made, well, I don't know, three mistakes? What, what, what about the same kind of mistake three times? Is Jesus up to that? You think he can handle it? You think the cross was enough? Do you think that God and his planning of the great universe, his guiding us through the Red Sea, providing us writers and prophets and kings, and then bringing us Jesus, Jesus born in a manger, raises up, he teaches us, he's crucified, comes back out of the grave, and then he resurrects into heaven. We serve him, Holy Spirit intercedes for us. We're moving forward with the gospel of love. Love God, love others, that's our law. But you don't think he can handle that sin? That makes no sense. What other sin can he not handle? What other errors? in my life, and there have been a pile of them because I'm just like you, and we're all in it together. We all need Jesus, and the good news is we got him. I think the people that taught this damnable presumption, as Wallace called it, did so because they truly believed they had to be exactly right and parse everything in legal terms and walk this super tight rope to get to Jesus. And all of them that have since passed, and many of them have, I think that they are in heaven. And I think that if they could talk to you today, they would not talk to you about the horrors of hell. They would talk to you about the wonders of walking with Christ. We don't need to beat up each other because we made mistakes. We don't need that. We need to accept each other as Christ has accepted us. Romans 15, 7. There are some who believe that if we open up forgiveness to those that are divorced and remarried once, twice, three times, we'll um, create a casual view of divorce. So people will say, oh, well, I'm going to get forgiven anyway. So boom. You know, there are going to be people that do that. And I hope they repent of that attitude. But we offer forgiveness repeatedly, again and again, as we should, to addicts, to alcoholics, to liars, to greedy, 
How often should we forgive gluttony? Especially in a nation which has an, an epidemic of obesity. How often should we forgive people who misuse food? Why would you think that that's a lesser sin? They're all sins. My sin may not be gluttony. It has been. It has been. Um, my sin, my, my besetting sin has never been gluttony, but I've been a glutton. I've overeaten. I put on 50 extra pounds that I took off about 10 years ago now. Um, and by the way, because it could, some people are big because they can't lose weight either. There are all kinds of things going on. You want to talk about a complicated subject, talk about baristics, talk about weight. It really is. But we all know we're eating trash and we're eating far too much of it. We all know that there's a reason for a dollar and two dollar and three dollar menus in fast food places. Fat is cheap. Junk is cheap. And if we're addicted to it, you know, if we, we don't have to be, but we put ourselves there in that situation, then yeah, that's a sin. How many times do you think God can forgive that? I believe he can forgive that every single time because we are struggling. We're trying to figure out how to do well and we fail. And sometimes that doesn't include running through the burger shack 18 times in a week. Sometimes that mistake is we married the wrong person or more often we did not live honorably with the person we married and we didn't try hard enough or whatever. Can God forgive that mistake? Yes, the way he forgives all others. So should, does that create then a casual feeling about go ahead and do drugs. We don't care. God will forgive it. You ever heard a preacher say that? I hope not. It's true, God will forgive it if you repent. And by the way, I've met addicts all my life who've been addicts all their life, who fail again and again all their life, who truly repent, even though it's probably gonna happen again. Remember Jesus said it's not given to everybody. It's given to those who can keep it. Paul was very concerned about some sin in his life and he prayed to God three times, take this away. And God said, I have enough grace for you. God didn't take it away. God says, my grace will cover you. It'll cover you too. Teaching the truth about this doctrine will remove some absurdities. Churches will accept a man who slept with a hundred prostitutes and a hundred teenagers before he got married. But they will not accept a woman who was beaten and fled a marriage, divorced and remarried another man. How absurd is that? How absurd is this? How, they will put away somebody who was married as a virgin, put, that was put away by a sinful mate. They stayed celibate until they remarried and now they're, they're faithful in that marriage and then are kicked out. Why should your standards be higher than that of Jesus Christ? Why? Why should it be harder to get into your church than into the heart of Christ? I believe the question answers itself. I'm going to leave it there for now. Um, again, the names used 
came out of these booklets, which may be impossible to get. Um, I don't even see a copyright on the magazine form. So as far as I can tell, there are, there are no copyright issues on this at all. Um, and this one has, does not explain who put it together, who transcribed it. And this one just has the name of a fellow. On the back it does have, looks like he printed it himself. There's no copyright. And he was from Hoxie, Kansas. I haven't tried to look him up. Um, why would I do that? Uh, this guy actually names names and he comes down where I come down on the issue. So I like the guy. Uh, let's not dox anybody. Let's instead say, you know something? God is the judge. And God loves us. He's made that so plain. For God so loved the world. Let's let God handle who's in and who isn't. And let's say what Jesus said. Because if we say what Jesus said, we can't go wrong. Whosoever will may come. Guess what? Jesus didn't just say that when he's walking around. Revelation, that scary, heavy, symbolic, metaphoric book says, whosoever will come. Let him who hears come. The bride says, come. The spirit says, come. The lamb says, come. All are welcome. Let us not reject those whom God has not rejected. Thank you for hanging in there. Again, uh, sometime late September, early October, we'll probably do a couple of Monday morning messages on this, but in much shorter form. So thank you. This is our first long form video. Let, it, let me know if you want others. I've considered doing uh, long form videos on a series I used to do called God at War that was about uh, basically why I'm not a Calvinist and why I believe in God even though there is evil in the world. That would require about probably four this length. So we're going to need other software and engineers to help us put that together. So pray for that to come along. But in the meantime, may God bless you. Be at, be at peace. Peace. For the Prince of Peace is our King.